the Lord Jesus Christ, lead me. This is Deacon James, discussing this seventh part of an eight-part podcast designed to assist Christians with their faith in God. This seventh part is entitled, Sacraments, Magical Graces. So far in the previous six parts, we have read some sections of the Bible that reveal God's personal encounters with various people on earth, such as Moses and the Apostles of Jesus. Through God's self-revelation, the church was formed and strengthened, and with the ongoing cooperation of the Holy Spirit in the church, a holy tradition was established and passed on throughout the church, revealing the divine character of the human organization. In the Old Testament, it was the Israelite people, with their fathers being Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the New Testament, it is the church, with Christ being the head. It's the same human organization, the same Holy Spirit, the same grace-filled organization passing through time. In this session, we are going to talk sacraments, which are the ritual activities of the church. And through the sacraments is the graceful encounter and activity of God the Holy Spirit, revealing the person of Jesus Christ to those who participate. The word sacrament comes from the Latin word sacramentum, which was an image which denoted the oath of loyalty sworn by soldiers to their earthly lord, the emperor. This image of an of a soldier swearing their loyalty to an emperor was applied by Tertullian, who is a Latin church father around 200 AD. And Tertullian applied this image to the Christian sacraments or the Christian mysteries by which man, when they participated in the ritual activity, was swearing an oath of loyalty to their God, thus something like their emperor. Thus, the Latin word sacramentum, as a technical term, held the same implication as the Greek word mysterion, or mystery, which is used to this day for sacraments in Eastern Christianity. So in Latin Christianity, they referred the word sacraments. In Greek Christianity, they referred to them as mysteries. Many times in Scripture, God's action presence or the working out of his plan in history is said to be a mystery. The mystery is known to to God alone and those to whom God chooses to reveal it. Only by faith and divine revelation can the spiritual truth behind actions and events be discerned. In other words, the sacrament or the mystery won't be understood unless you participate in it. And when you participate in the mystery, then God is revealed to you. The incarnation of Jesus is such a mystery, since only by faith do we believe that the man Jesus Christ whom we see, read about, or have heard about is actually God. Further, Jesus is a mystery concealing not just his divinity, but his Father. As Jesus told Philip the Apostle, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. John 14, verse 9. Therefore, we can say that Christ himself is a sacrament of his Father. In another way, the church itself is a mystery or sacrament, since it is the mystical Christ, the body of Christ, Christ being the head, 
and the people its members. In this relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the church itself is that one sacrament, that one mystery where the revelation of God is encountered and a relationship is built and established. To help us understand a little bit more about these mysteries, let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. St. Paul writes, For he, God, has made known to us in all wisdom and insight the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. From this verse, Paul is indicating that heaven and earth are joined together and as a mystery and revealed through the plan and the activity of Christ himself. And part of the plan of Christ is to unite all things to him. It is mysterious then how we can all be united, but as we enter into that relationship with God, who is union itself or himself, then we begin to understand how the mystery is revealed to us of our unity with one another and with all things. In another verse, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 3, St. Paul writes, How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, St. Paul writes which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And to make known and to make all men see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. So the mystery or the sacrament of God is through the church. That's where God is revealing his, the things that he wishes us to know. Namely, that he has created all things and that he had a plan for how this world might govern itself. And that as time unfolded and moved on, that plan of creation would be communicated through the prophets and then the holy apostles who would then communicate those things with the help of the Spirit himself. So God, even from the beginning of time, God has been there hiding, if you will, a mystery, if you will, hidden from eyes, but slowly and surely revealing himself by his Holy Spirit to certain people who then would then communicate to others and create this union between us. In his epistle to the Colossians, chapter 1, St. Paul writes in verses 24 and 28 regarding the mystery which is revealed. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the divine office, which was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden from ages and generations, but now made manifest to his holy saints. To them God chose to 
make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man mature in Christ. This was from Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 28. Well, the mystery then is communicated through Christ's apostles, specifically to build up the holy ones. And the building up of the holy ones in that relationship is the church. So now people can then expect to have this entire life of encountering the mystery of God, which then is revealed through this church's life. If we skip ahead to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, St. Paul will write about how the mystery remains hidden. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In these verses, he is beginning to call to baptism, which is that ritual of that Christians go through, which then is symbolic of their death and resurrection. In other words, when they descend through the water, they're washed as if they're remade uh, from death into a new life. This is what St. Paul means when he says, you've been raised with Christ, therefore you can seek the things that are above where Christ is, not seek the things that are below on earth. What is revealed through the baptismal life is now the encounter that humans who on earth now have with heaven. They have a heavenly relationship, a heavenly identity, even a heavenly life lived out now in their earthly bodies. And just as God seems hidden to people of this earth, those who go through baptism and begin to be united with the Holy Spirit then also become hidden to others on this earth as they begin to form themselves in godliness. These verses from Paul help us to understand that a sacrament or a mystery is the revelation in Jesus Christ. The purpose of the mystery or sacrament is to enable us to grow and become holy. Sacraments, then, have been described as means of grace. But if Christ is our sacrament, then we experience his grace in the church, in his body. Thus, everything that the church does is sacramental or mystical because it is an encounter with the grace of God through the Holy Spirit. This is what it means to be in Christ. And this is why the church conducts and operates its life through these ritual activities called sacraments. It's, an act, it's a bodily activity that engages our heart and mind, all of our earthly substance, with the divine reality of God, the Holy Spirit. In the life of the church over the past 2,000 years, in the church's history, if the church is the one sacrament or the one mystery, then all the rituals that are a part of the church, it doesn't really matter how we particularly number them. In fact, many church fathers, depending on the way they define their, uh, the, the mystery or the sacrament, then we'll determine how many they number. 
So really determining how many sacraments there are in the church isn't really a relevant question. In fact, the numbering of the sacraments is really a way just to try to help new catechumens or even children begin to understand the kinds of things or the kinds of graces or the kinds of rituals and activities that would uh, be a part of their churchly life. So we don't limit Christ's grace by counting two or seven or even ten or any other number of sacraments. Uh, some of the church fathers counted ten. I remember reading a certain Russian uh, church father who, in the way that he was enumerating sacrament, he, was count, he counted as many as 35 sacraments. But really what he was counting was all the different various kinds of graces that could be experienced through the life of the church. And that's a really interesting way to think about sacrament, because where we would find grace, there we will find the presence of the Holy Spirit. So the idea of seven sacraments was introduced in the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century for the sake of convenience and teaching, and it identified certain important sacramental acts. But even where Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox writers have picked up the notion of seven, they haven't always even been consistent about which seven acts they are. Grace, in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, grace is the presence of God who is experienced in the midst of those who are gathered in the name of Jesus in the church, which means that all of the Christian's life is to be a sacrament. You and I can be a sacrament. So let's talk about a few of the church's sacramental ritual activities. Let's start with baptism. We'll read a few sections from the New Testament which help us understand the grace that is encountered through the ritual activity of baptism. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, St. Paul will say, For as many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and 4, St. Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What Paul is referring to here is this, myster this mysterious union that occurs in baptism where we join with Christ, just as he has died, we also will die. But just as he was resurrected, we also will be resurrected. That is the hopeful grace. That is the graceful promise. That reality to come after our bodies may give out on us on this earth, unless Jesus comes back before then. But what that also means is that for Christians, death itself is transformed for us. Death occurs in baptism because that's where we were united to Christ who then joined us to him so that we would never actually die even if our bodies give out on us. A few other verses regarding baptism. John chapter 3 verse 5. Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That kingdom of God is that eternal relationship with Jesus of Nazareth and with all those whom he has brought in with him, this divine unity or union. 
the last the last section I want to read is from Matthew chapter 3 13 through 17 this is the baptism of Jesus an important important event uh, really in the history of the world from the baptism of Jesus what is revealed is Jesus being fully God and fully man. What is revealed is the Trinity. What is revealed is the goodness of God that they have, that God has with, uh, that the Father and the Son have with one another. And then also, too, what is revealed is that God's desire for everybody to be joined with him. Matthew writes, chapter 3, verse 13 and following, then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized by John. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. A low, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. If the gospel narrative of Jesus' life were a movie, and that the movie begun near the beginning of Jesus' ministry, which is what his baptism is, the baptism almost gives away the end of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. For the implication right here is God is already pleased with what he has done. He's now fulfilling all righteousness. He's now told us how this game is going to end. Now told us how he's going to then, uh, how he's going to defeat his, uh, his enemies in the end. He's going to rise from the dead. That's the image that we see from Jesus going down into the water and up again. That's the voice that we hear the Father uh, cementing that image that God is going to win. He's not going to lose. That is how we can understand baptism when we are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, life has now won for us. We have won. There's nothing to lose. Even if our bodies give out on us, we have the resurrection promise. We have that grace of the ongoing communion with God who is well-pleased and now drawing us into the things in which he is well-pleased. In the Orthodox Church, the ritual activity of chrismation, which is the anointing of oil, is within the baptism service itself. But oftentimes, by some, it is called a separate uh, sacrament from baptism, just a distinction of terms, since in baptism is the immersion in the water, now in chrismation is the anointing of oil. And let us read from a couple of sections from Paul about chrismation. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, St. Paul says, In Christ you also, who have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and have believed in Christ, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. During the ritual activity of chrismation in the Orthodox baptismal service, the priest then will take some holy oil that is specially dedicated for this service alone, for this grace, if you will, and he will anoint the forehead, 
the eyes, the hands, the heart, the feet, uh, the ears. And, in, and every time he anoints one of those, uh, those places on the body, he says the seal of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And everybody that is there will respond back, seal. This is an inspiration from this verse where we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We are graced with the now pledge of ongoing communion and activity with God, the Holy Spirit. This is what the oil represents. Just as oil is anointed on, what we really are anointed with is the Holy Spirit himself. In John chapter 1, verses 2, I'm sorry, in 1 John, John's first epistle, chapter 2, St. John writes about chrismation. I write this to you about those who would deceive you, but the anointing, the christening, the chrismating, which you receive from Christ abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. The anointing teaches you, St. John says. What he's referring to there is the Holy Spirit that is anointed through the oil. And in the anointing of that oil, we are now abiding in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is abiding in us. We now have this grace-filled relationship with God, the Holy Spirit, who is now helping us uh, to lead a good and honest life so that our resurrection will not be stolen from us or death would then come back into us somehow. In the Orthodox tradition, baptism and chrismation together were seen as the time of illumination, whereas Christ was then illuminated upon us, or in a sense we, through the baptism and creation and chrismation, stepped into the light to now live in this light. We get a glimpse of that in the baptism of Jesus himself, where then things are revealed, because in the Orthodox Christian tradition, Revelation and illumination are similar topics, and oftentimes they're, they're, they sort of transpose one another. For example, in the Matins service, really one of the main hymns that begins the service is, God is the Lord and has revealed himself to us. But actually in another translation, that is, God is the Lord who has shown us light. So the showing us light or illumination and revelation or a similar, if not the same, phenomenon. So I want to read a couple verses that help us understand this a little bit more. Going all the way into the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 16, or actually this would be 1 Kings 16, verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. So we see even... And the Christian practice of chrismation, the anointing with oil, this was an, a custom that went back even into the days of David. And even before that, into the days of Moses, the anointing of oil where the Spirit then was promised or graced upon them. In St. Peter's first epistle, chapter 2, verses 9, St. Peter describes it this way, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So just as David was anointed with the Spirit by Samuel, 
those of us who are anointed with the Spirit into Christ are now illumined with all of the light-filled things that Christ is and Christ has and Christ offers to us. The kingship and priesthood come through baptism, for Christ is the light. And since we are baptized into Christ, baptism is often referred to as illumination in the New Testament and in the church's liturgical usage. In the history of the church or the life of the church, the practice of confession, where a Christian will go before their priest, who then becomes a witness to hear someone's confession of the sins they have committed and the request absolution or forgiveness of their uh, sins that they have committed. This action of confession with the absolution is often, has often been referred to as a sacrament. And really what the practice of confession is, is a playing out of our baptism. When we come to confess a sin, it is if we are stepping back into the water of our baptism, we are immersing ourselves down into the water to kill the thing that is killing us. And so that then when we rise up out of the water, then we are forgiven, we are resurrected, we are absolved of the very sin that is now washed out of our souls and hopefully washed out of our hearts and our minds so that we would not commit them again. The ability or the grace of absolution, the grace of hearing confessions by the priest, of course, is a grace of Christ, is a grace of Christ through the Holy Spirit. It's not simply something that men take upon themselves to do. It must be given over to them by Christ. So that they now must so that priests and bishops must now submit their will to Christ to hear people's confessions and then read that absolution over them. It's a sacred moment and a sacred time. And there's been a good discussion throughout the history of the church of what is often called the seal of the confession, which means that when someone confesses a sin to the priest, uh, that he is under oath. He has taken a seal to not ever discuss that, what he heard in confession with anyone ever. Where do they get this power and ability? Let's take a look at John chapter 20, verses 21 to 23. These are the classical verses which reveal to us the practice of confession. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. Jesus is here talking to the apostles, his twelve apostles, Peter, James, and John, and those who followed them. And when Jesus said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So Jesus, when he provides the grace to certain men to hear confession, it is a peaceful one. It's meant to be a peace, uh, a time of peace and grace for which the Holy Spirit is now involved. So when people go to confess their sins before the priest, they must always remember the Holy Spirit is also involved, listening and engaged. Your heart is being opened up to God, not simply to another man. So therefore, their, your confession or confession among Christians has way more to do than simply an earthly activity. There's divinity involved.
if confession is a sacrament out of baptism, another sacrament that has to do with oil is what is referred to as holy unction. This is a different kind of oil from the holy chrism at chrismation. For the unction oil is blessed and designed to be used for the healing of body, the healing of the mind, the healing of the soul after someone's baptism. So for example, if you burned your hand on a, on a burner and it left a mark and it was painful, you might call your priest and ask them to bless you with the holy oil of the church. And sometimes there are magical qualities, if I might use that word, uh, because I, I know of people who have been blessed with the holy unction oil with severe burns that were painful and the pain went away on that day. So here's a couple Bible verses for us to understand the, the practice and use of holy oil in the church in this grace-filled sacrament. Mark, I'm sorry, James chapter 5, 14 through 16. St. James writes, Is any among you sick? Let him call for the presbyters of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith will save the sick man. And the Lord will raise him up. And if, his, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So the practice of blessing oil with unction upon those who are sick then provides the promise or the grace of the name of the Lord, the promise or grace of the faith of others who has the power to help others heal. And then also the promise and the grace of the resurrection, which in this case, James is referring to those who are recover and get better. But even when the way that James uses this phrase and the Lord will raise him up, it is always meant to have us forecast the resurrection to come, where then one, there will be a day when we are taken away from this world, which is a constant world of sicknesses and sins. And then also... The last grace that is given through the Holy Unction is the grace of forgiveness, where then we should feel empowered or even able now to confess our sins to one another, as our sins are another kind of disease that really needs to be healed. Another verse about the healing of unction comes from Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 13. And Mark records, And they cast out many demons, and anointed with oil many that were sick, and healed them. So even before Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus sent out the disciples, and he sent them along with oil. And they were casting out demons and healing people of their sicknesses. It's an interesting comparison, because the casting out of demons is also parallel to the diseases of the body which means that the, what our body encounters in its sicknesses also has a spiritual dimension to it. And when we are battling demons, uh, that also has a bodily or earthly dimension to it, which is making our bodies sick. This is the sacrament of holy unction. In the life of the church, marriage itself has long been regarded as a sacrament from St. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, St. Paul writes about marriage, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, 
and the two shall be one flesh. This mystery or sacrament is a profound one, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Marriage between a man and a woman is meant to be an image of the marriage of Christ in his church, Christ being the bridegroom, the church being the bride. It is a mysterious union, but is a union that brings us all as one flesh. Christ provides his flesh to us. The church provides its flesh to Jesus. Jesus, of course, is healing the flesh of the church to making it unite to him in his divinity. Similar to the marriage of a man and a woman. Perhaps in many ways a man and a woman joining together can heal one another of whatever ailments they have. Maybe loneliness. And there may not be a more explicit way of curing loneliness than having children, which then is the promise and the grace of marriage to come to become co-creators with God the Creator. When children are born, that is similar than the man and the woman understand what it means to be the father of children. That's the grace that comes from marriage. Which is why, in many ways, Marriage itself is just an, is a, a parallel of baptism where, through our, where baptism and chrismation also become a marriage of one who is being baptized as they're being married to God for the rest of their lives and frankly for the rest of eternity. Another sacrament is the sacrament of ordination where St. Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 4.1 this is how one should regard us, the apostles, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In the church's life, the sacramental or mysterious ritual activities are always conducted with the priests, bishops, and the deacons. These priests, bishops, and deacons, these are the ones whom God has called to place as the stewards of the mysteries. Uh, their will is now a, a joined will with God to carry out these particular graces in the lives of people so that the, the people then would find their marriage life fulfilled with their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy 3, chapter 8, St. Paul writes, Deacons, which by extension would be priests and bishops, likewise must be serious, not double-tongued, not addicted to too much wine, not greedy for gain, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience or the sacrament of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first and then if they prove themselves blameless let them serve as deacons here in the practice of the grace for these men who are called to serve as bishops priests and deacons they must show themselves a kind of virtue that then would allow their stewardship of the mysteries to be one that is divine and uh, not one that is of selfish flesh. Perhaps I've saved the best for last, but the last ritual activity that we're going to talk about as sacraments is the Eucharist or the Holy Communion or the Mystical Supper. Eucharist is the Greek word of thanksgiving. So this ritual activity of the eating and drinking of this bread and wine is meant to be a ritual activity of thanksgiving on our part for what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do for those who eat and drink of that bread and wine. 
And in Christian context, of course, that bread and wine is understood to be the body and blood of our Lord and God and Savior Jesus Christ. This is part of our understanding of marriage, where the church itself is the bride who then is in union with their Lord so much that now our one flesh is his flesh. He takes on our flesh and heals our flesh. He takes on our broken bodies and gives us his divine body. Our blood is dead blood. His blood is life blood. So in the bread and the wine, he is giving us the good bread of the kingdom. He's giving us the blood, the life blood of which is greater than the blood of Abel in the New Testament. There's so many biblical references to understand the bread and the wine in the Holy Communion and the, the profound mystery that is encountered that uh, we could do numerous podcasts on just the Holy Communion itself. But I want to reference a few verses. Uh, this one from Matthew 26, verses 26 and 28. Now as the apostles were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The graces that are promised here is the unity of Jesus Christ, his body and his blood. The graces that are promised here is the forgiveness of sins through this eating and drinking, through this mystical union with Jesus is the healing of our bodies, the healing of our minds, the healing of our souls. In another way, St. John writes in chapter 6, verse 51, Jesus says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. So here then, as we understand the mystical union and Holy Communion, what we are giving thanks for is the flesh of Jesus, which is his body, which is in the bread, which then is the promise of life forever or life eternal, life everlasting. The last section I want to read regarding the Eucharist actually comes from a letter of Ignatius of Antioch to the Ephesians chapter 13. St. Ignatius writes, Make an effort then to meet more frequently to celebrate God's Eucharist and to offer praise. For when you meet frequently in the same place, the forces of Satan are overthrown and his baneful influence is neutralized by the unanimity of your faith. Now we have another grace that is understood through the Eucharist or the Holy Communion, but that is protection against the demons, protection against Satan, protection against the dark forces. Since we are baptized or illuminated, since we are anointed or chrismated as kings and priests, since we are then healed through holy unction with, uh, of the body and of the mind and of the heart, since we, are, since we can be married in great union with other people, since we are married with God through baptism, 
since we have stewards of graces, then we have this immense unanimity of faith. This is the sacrament of the church. This is the unity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the Christian faith. This is the Christian church. This is what it means when we call out, Lord Jesus Christ, lead me.